Do you remember back before the pandemic hit when superbugs were the scariest boogeyman in the healthcare world? I mean, of course you do, but you'd be forgiven if you haven't thought about them in a while. These days, all of the attention is on the coronavirus, and importantly, so are the resources of the pharma industry, including research dollars, human power, and regulatory efforts. But superbugs haven't gone away. In fact, in many ways, the pandemic has made this threat loom even larger. I'm Megan Parrish, Senior Editor of Pharma Manufacturing Magazine, and you're listening to Off Script, our podcast that runs beyond the pages of our magazine to discuss the issues that matter most in the pharma world. Now, we've known about superbugs for a long time, and the predictions about what the spread of a life-threatening bacteria that's resistant to antibiotics could do have long been ominous. Some have called this threat potentially the end of modern medicine, or sounded the alarm about an antibiotic apocalypse. We've also long known that because antibiotics are considered commodities, there's not much return for pharma companies investing in innovating new options. So R&D dollars for new antibiotics have been drying up year after year. Now, here's a quick snapshot of how this issue has been impacted by the coronavirus. The unneeded use of antibiotics is on the rise, which we know exacerbates the problem of microbes building a resistance to them. One study showed that between May and June of this year, about 56% of 1,700 coronavirus patients in Michigan were given antibiotics, even though only 3.5% were shown to have a confirmed bacterial infection. But for coronavirus patients that do indeed have a bacterial infection, the outcome worsens, especially in critically ill patients. According to research published by the American Society of Microbiology, what's even more concerning is the fact that a higher rate of bacterial co-infections occurred in critically ill patients, even though a vast majority of them, or 92% in this study, were given antibiotics. But worst of all, in this study, there were 28 patients who were critically ill and developed a secondary bacterial infection, and all but one of them died. Despite these very troubling reports, there is some hope in the market for new antibiotics to fight superbugs. For example, new regulatory and market efficiencies that have been created to speed the development of coronavirus vaccines and treatments could also potentially be applied to a new race for antibiotics. And a new organization was launched this year to help infuse the pipeline for new antibiotics with needed cash and resources. Called the AMR Action Fund, the group is being backed by a number of major pharma companies and has secured investments for antibiotics totaling up to $1 billion. So to help give us more of an idea about what the AMR Action Fund is all about and what impact it could have on the market for antibiotics, I'm joined today by Martin Bott, the organization's interim general manager. Martin also spent over 30 years at Eli Lilly and Company as a vice president in finance and special projects and more. Okay, Martin, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this really important issue. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Absolutely. I was wondering if we could start by um, having you just give me a little bit of background on the AMR Action Fund and how it came about. Yeah, uh, perhaps I start with that. What is antimicrobial resistance? That's you know some people call it the superbugs and 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 so forth. And that is really an existing and a growing public health needs. I mean, estimates right now are that about 700,000 people die every year on bacterial infections that cannot be treated. And the trend is not very encouraging. And some predictions are if the current trends continue, by 2050, it could kill as many as 10 million people, more than currently die on cancer. This has led really the pharmaceutical industry and under the leadership of the International Pharmaceutical Association in 2019, so that's actually before we all heard about COVID-19, to step back and say, how can we play a role in addressing this public health need? Major issue is that there has been very little innovation in novel antibiotics. I read somewhere that uh, the last novel class in antibiotics was brought to market in the 1980s. So that's a long time ago. And the root cause of that, in my opinion, is that uh, the market has somewhere failed to recognize the value new antibiotics bring to people and, and to society at large. And therefore, risk capital has not come into this area to encourage and fund risky research and development. And so that's where we're trying to address here as a, as a fund, uh, mainly sponsored by the industry, to help bring forward novel, very promising science and antibiotics so that we can save people's lives. Yeah, and you mentioned that it's funded by the industry. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so to date, and, and we announced this in, in, in July, more than 20 pharmaceutical companies have taken the initiative and come together with so far, almost a billion dollars to create this fund. We also do expect to get additional investors, both from the industry and non-industry, and they could be coming from philanthropic and charitable organization, development banks, and so forth. So ultimately, when it's all said and done, we hope and expect to have a fund of a size of north or more than a billion dollars uh, for that. Interesting to note is that the Companies that come together are of all sizes, geographically from every corner in the world, Japan, Europe, US, and, and, and so forth, large, small companies, companies that are still active in this field, some are, are not in this field. And the purpose really is to pool, take this money and uh, invest it where the most pressing needs are, and that is when we see good science coming out of preclinical, going to uh, early clinical trials that can really make a difference in clinical practice and save people's lives, let's make sure that none of that innovation gets stuck due to lack of funding. And so the industry wants to lend its dollars as well as its talent, its expertise to help these companies bring to market. However, this is just a short-term fix. And uh, we also need to make sure that different reimbursement systems are being put in place so that we put in place a sustainable ecosystem that rewards risk capital and the, the investment of talent and money into the research and development of antibiotics so that we can actually solve this challenge against the superbugs 
for decades to come and not just for the 2030s. Right. And you um, talked about at the beginning just how big the stakes are, just how many people are dying from um, this issue and just how much worse it could get. On uh, The AMR Action Fund has stated that its goal is to bring two to four antibiotics to market by 2030. So given how big this issue is, I'm wondering, will that be enough? Absolutely not. <laughs> Clearly, this is a significant amount of money, but there are probably more opportunities than we could even fund for this. You know, just to give you an example, right now, I think there are about 700 vaccines and therapeutics in development for COVID-19. But if you look at the pipeline of antibiotics right now, there are only 40 in clinical development. So that just gives you a little bit the, uh, the magnitude. If you look at approvals in the last several decades of cancer drugs versus uh, antibiotics, it has come down and there are more cancer drugs. There. That indicates the market is not working. So we need to do more. Clearly, the fund will have a positive impact on development because hopefully we will put the, the dollars and the expertise wisely into promising research, but more needs to be done in order to solve it on a sustainable way. There has been really good efforts done by um, CARPEX, European Investment Bank, WHO, um, repair impact funds to help foster early research, preclinical research. So when it comes out of academia, into early clinical trials that has created a good early stage pipeline. And the fund, we really want to make sure that what's coming out of that effort doesn't get stuck, gets rewarded. And then we hope, however, that the markets are being reestablished and uh, we have a sustainable uh, ecosystem. Right. I was wondering if you could just tell me what the trends have been um, in the pipeline for antibiotics, just let's say over the last five to 10 years. I mean, have investments been falling or staying level? Yeah, the investments uh, in antibiotic development has been declining and uh, fewer companies are also researching. And as I said before, and I sound like a broken record, the issue is the rewards on the other side for that risk, for that time, dollars, and talent that's being put in is not rewarded in the current reimbursement systems, which work on price times volume. And sometimes these antibiotics ought to be put in reserve. So that not shouldn't drive much volume. And if you need to charge a high price, you have an excess problem uh, and so forth. So that's where we need to have a rethinking in, in these reimbursement reforms. So, as I said, the investment in antibiotics has been declining. Again, some efforts, and I mentioned them before, CARBAX, Novo's Holdings, Repair Impact Fund from BARDA, et cetera, have really done a tremendous job in fostering this early research and, and supporting antibiotic development, et cetera. We want to make sure it doesn't get stuck. And then, um, because we need to have new classes in antibiotics in order to address these super bugs or these high priority pathogens at which we're running out of ammunition. And I wonder if you could tell me just a little bit about the pipeline um, and how it looks right now. You mentioned that we need new classes. Are you seeing some new classes of antibiotics in development? Yeah, we actually believe uh, that the preclinical antibiotic pipeline is very strong. Again, I have to give praise to Barda and Carbex and, and, and so forth. As of May 2019, Nature Reviews identified 407 discovery and preclinical development projects 
many of them representing potentially new classes or new targets or new mechanisms of action. So that makes us very optimistic that once those come into uh, the later phase of clinical trial, the fund is established and, and we have enough really good uh, promising science that the fund will in, invest in and help bring to market. And that's how we hope to get to the two to four antibiotics to the patients, to save patients' lives by the end of the decade. Can you tell me, I'm just curious, can you tell me a little bit about um, some of the challenges involved with developing new antibiotics compared to other classes of drugs? Are there any challenges that are very unique to antibiotics or is it kind of follow the typical timeline and the typical challenges that we see with other kinds of treatments? Yeah, I'm, I'm not the expert in, I'm not a scientist in, in, in that field, but clearly uh, uh, I understand that toxicology is, is a key issue, right? So you, you may have something that has efficacy against the pathogen, against the bacteria, but how do you make sure it doesn't uh, attack the healthy microbiome in, in your system and side effects and, and so forth? My understanding is that most uh, ideas die when you try them out in, in tox studies before you even uh, test them in, in patients. Uh, and so forth. So that's one unique um, um, specificity on antibiotics. Manufacturing can be a, a challenge, but I think we have that on, on many other therapeutic areas as well. Okay. So the issue is really incentives, like you talked about, um, and getting the right kinds of funds. I'm wondering now, how have things shifted since the start of the coronavirus pandemic? There are so much of the industry's time and resources and funds now are all being funneled into ending this pandemic. And how has that impacted the work of the AMR Action Fund and your efforts? Yeah, it's uh, um, it has affected it a bit. First, the initiative started way before COVID. Now that we work together with the WHO and European Investment Bank and the Wellcome Trust, we have done a lot of thinking on it before and leveraged their thinking in this proposal led to the fund. Etc. The direct impact on our project and our fund was that, you know, instead of having meetings in one room where we get everybody together or everything was virtual, our launch meetings in July were virtual. And, um, and many of our investors are also very focused on, on COVID right now. And so I, I cannot distract myself. I need to be focused and solve this, uh, this issue, which makes uh, total sense. Having said this, uh, even so, this whole uh, antimicrobial resistance was there before COVID. COVID actually lends it, a, 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 put a new lens on it in a positive way in my mind. So I think COVID has, sh has shown that investment and preparation, being better prepared, has an incredible benefit in terms of you know, reduced patient suffering and reduced economic damage. And I think that will help, actually, in, in our mind, you know, getting the right decision makers together to say, okay, we need to address this intermicrobial resistance, public health issues as well, and cannot be penny-wise and pound-foolish, and probably need to spend some more money and investment in getting prepared, collaborating globally, and and so forth. The other thing is, uh, unfortunately, COVID has on that, and I think more than one in five hospitalized COVID patients 
actually develop a bacterial infection. And many, I've been told, actually, of, of the people who died, didn't die necessarily directly of the COVID virus, but of the infections they, they acquired. And uh, so there's another um, lesson learned here that we need to give our healthcare providers, those heroes on the front line, we need to give them more options, more ammunition to fight bacterial infections. Yeah, what you were saying before, it reminded me of uh, one of those key takeaways I had from microeconomics 101 back in college. And that was the cost of prevention is always cheaper than the cost of cleanup. And that's certainly something that we're seeing with the coronavirus pandemic. And I could see how that would spur people to be more motivated um, to make sure that we don't experience a pandemic with these bacterial infections. Um, and so... I could see what you're saying about balancing the the challenges of resources being taken away, but also the motivation is there. And so I'd imagine at this point, too, you've got to be thinking about how to keep this momentum going even after the pandemic and keeping making sure people don't forget these lessons that they're learning. Absolutely. I think there's some great learnings from COVID as well. I think what we are seeing right now in an unprecedented speed and collaboration and openness about the communication, cooperation between industry, regulators, politicians, and, and so forth. That, I think these learnings we need to take here as well and apply this to here. Also, the virus or the bugs, the super bugs, the bacteria, they don't stop at the nation's border. Right? These are global issues. And uh, therefore, we need to work together globally in a transparent way and collaborate. These are human issues and not German, French, American issues, right? Those, those are public health, global public health issues. And I think we can take a lot of learnings also to new approaches into clinical trials to see, can we be more innovative uh, in this and, and come better to the appropriate risk-benefit analysis to, um, to evaluate, is it safe to approve a drug, to make it available for wider use, et cetera because the, the benefit to public health is outweighing some of the remaining risks, et cetera. And how do you monitor this? We have great data um, capturing abilities today, real-world evidence, et cetera. I think we can learn a lot of um, uh, what we are doing on, on COVID uh, and apply this to, in general, drug development, also for antimicrobial uh, drugs. Yeah, um, I'm glad that you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about what we've seen in terms of how regulators and the government have been able to streamline both the clinical trials process and now the approvals process for these coronavirus vaccines and treatments. And I'm wondering, and I, I think everyone in the industry is wondering, are these sort of new methods going to be applied you know, to lots of different drug classes and development? But are you thinking that this is something that could help with antibiotics? And is this something you might be sort of pushing for? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. At the right time, we take the learnings and say, what are the ones you just take out in a crisis situation? And which are the ones that, hey, they should be incorporated into our daily lives, how we approve, evaluate, develop drugs, etc. I think the goals here, our fund here is really right now to speed up that innovation in this context as well. We want to collaborate with regulators, et cetera. And the other objective for the fund more longer term is to slow down the resistance, right? And that again, 
needs a collaboration with governments, healthcare providers, the industry, patients, etc. Et and you know, diagnostics play as well an important role to have faster, more tailored diagnostics so that the physician doesn't have to give, based on a guess, a broad, broad spectrum antibiotic, but can perhaps be more tailored uh, to that specific infection the patient has and, and the pathogens that cause that infection. So there's a lot of things that I think we can learn directly and indirectly from COVID and uh, which can reduce the cost of developing that will help the equation um, speed up things. And then, but I always have to come back. We also need to have the appropriate investment in probably not volume-driven reimbursements for these antibiotics, for the value they bring to society and the peace of mind they bring to the, the, the family that hey, if my kid gets, in, gets an infection, my doctor has a whole set of drugs available to make sure we can succeed against that infection. And I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about the incentives that you think need to exist on the market in order to drive more innovation um, with antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. As I said, right now, I, I think we have seen the results of not having adequate uh, incentives uh, in the system and, and why this therapeutic area for antibiotics has been really slowing down while so many other therapeutic sales have had some breakthrough innovation in the past decades and, and so forth. Um, but when I step back, I think we need to look into the appropriate reward mechanisms. I think there are different approaches uh, being discussed. I think it has to be delinked from the actual volume uh, and, and the actual use because it's sometimes not appropriate to use a last reserve antibiotic more widely, et cetera. But the value to have that antibiotic that yeah, really strong one. Yeah, if, if everything else fails, etc., that peace of mind is worth something. And and so I think rewarding companies who have put the risk in, into developing this. Um, yeah, reimbursements that reward this for that innovation, for that peace of mind that they bring, for that value to society that we can live normal lives and and, and so forth should be rewarded and therefore it's somewhat volume independent. Uh, people talked about subscription models, like a Netflix model or perhaps how we pay for our uh, fire station at the corner, right? Everybody pays a little bit and, 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 and not just the people whose house is on fire have to pay for the annual cost of the fireman and the fire engine and, and, the, and the building and, and so forth. So I think those are um, some concepts. Um, and I'm very pleased to see that there is, uh, even here in US Congress, some um, legislation that are being discussed that, that go in the right direction. Okay. So basically, you feel like there needs to be buy-in from the world's major governments. Yeah. I, I, I think it needs to start at the G7 or G20 mm -hmm. and, and so forth, because we also need to make these solutions available to lower and middle income countries at prices where they can afford it, right? At, at cost. And, and therefore, there's the solution has to come. Let's say in G7, we have what a billion people mm -hmm. consisting of G7. A, a few dollars per citizen there can go a long way in, in reviving this. 
Now, you kind of touched on this at the start of our conversation when you were talking about just how bad the predictions are for um, the death toll um, associated uh, with AMRs. Um, is there anything that you could add to this? What is sort of the worst case scenario you could envision if new antibiotics are not developed and brought to market? Yeah, the worst case scenario is what I described right at the beginning, that we don't break the trend and we discover too late that, oh my gosh, what happened? And it becomes more public. Right now, it's a little bit, you know, who knew that there are 700,000 people dying of bacterial infections and nobody talks about it. It's a slow creeping up, you know, crisis rather than all of a sudden you have the crisis. So that's my nightmare scenario. I hope and I'm hopeful that we won't get to this. I really, from really, from actually from our launch meeting, I think we were a little bit of a catalyst for, for this discussion. The participants at our launch meetings came as well from the political side, from the non-governmental organization, charitable organization, etc. And they all said the right thing. So I think the willingness, first the awareness that something has to be done and the willingness to have constructive dialogue I think is absolutely there. So that makes me hopeful that we can. We may not yet agree on what exactly is this, et cetera. We strongly believe, and I strongly believe, the market is the best uh, uh, provider of solutions. Therefore, let's make sure we have the right market incentives. And then uh, I, I think the market will deliver the innovation that we need. And the AMR fund, will be really supporting clinical development in this decade. But if we just do this and get two to four antibiotics and then nothing else happened, that's not good. Those bugs continue to mutate, continue to grow resistance, et cetera. So we have to find a sustainable model that drives that innovation. But again, for all the reasons I said, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get there. Yeah, and I guess that I was going to ask you how optimistic you are. You've kind of just answered this, but as someone kind of entrenched in this issue um, and in the middle of it all, and someone who's talking to various stakeholders in the value chain for this, are you feeling now like something that what needs to be done is going to be done by governments, regulatory agents, the pharma industry, healthcare professionals, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I'm by nature optimistic and I have a can-do attitude, etc. Of course, I'm also talking to a lot of people who have been at it for decades and are a little bit burned out on this and caution me, etc. But I have to say, I'm really encouraged. And that's where, unfortunately, COVID-19, I think, is another catalyst that I believe helps change people's mind and saying, hey, we have to work together. We have to solve this uh, because um, otherwise we are on, on not, not a good trend and it uh, just causes too much human suffering and potential economic damage. And, and that's, you know, for, for really a, a serious reason here makes me more optimistic. And I think the industry is stepping up here, not from profit, uh, interest, et cetera, but really to help solve a, a public health need. And uh, with that, I hope we, we establish the basis for really constructive problem-solving dialogue. And I think if you put great minds together, we come up with great solutions. So if the right intent is there, get the right people, I think we, we will solve that. It's absolutely solvable. So that's my cautious optimism. 
hopefully after the industry, hopefully we'll be able to claim victory over the pandemic. This will be the next major global health challenge that the industry can claim victory over as well. Yeah. Um, was there anything really important to this discussion that we haven't talked about yet? Anything I missed? Good question. I think you had some very, very good questions uh, on that. Some that make me think as well, um, and so forth. I, I think uh, we covered it all. I, uh, I'm really humbled and honored to right now lead this as an interim CEO of the fund. We are working feverishly, um, really at least six days, if not seven days a week, on making this fund operational because we feel the sense of urgency. Um, we expect to be operating by the end of the year, therefore then looking into first investments in the first half of 2021. And uh, so that's what now we're spending our energy on. Um, yeah, we, we think the fund can do tremendous uh, good for people, for, for, the, for this public health issue, but it won't solve it alone. We need to address it in a sustainable way. We need the collaboration of many stakeholders. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all this uh, to me today. This was very interesting and informative, and it's such an important issue. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure.